about that in pursuit of building a uh, uh, library of face recognition, uh, researchers are chasing subjects around, holding them down, taking their pictures against their will. The subjects are forced to use their tongues to try to block the, uh, the, the cameras. Uh, and then the facial recognition software doesn't even work. Uh, the only uh, good news about this uh, for everybody but PETA is that this is an effort to do facial recognition on pigs and cows. Uh, was a great story in the Wall Street Journal. I, I'm guessing we will not see that as the latest facial recognition scandal, but it was fun to think about it. So 262 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And in my usual disclaimer, I'd like to add to it, my children don't necessarily agree with anything we say here, uh, nor does the firm, the clients, uh, or the institutions that sponsor the people who are uh, appearing on the panel. Uh, who are those people, you ask? Uh, well, Megan Brooks, uh, who's an associate in Steptoe's uh, San Francisco office, is here. Megan, this is your first time on, isn't it? It is. All right. Welcome. Uh, and another newbie, uh, Joel Brenner, currently a senior advisor to the Chertoff Group, formerly a senior counsel and the, then the inspector general at the National Security Agency. Joel, this is your first time. Welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Glad to be here. There's, there's almost never an episode where Nick Weaver is not uh, present, uh, calling in from Berkeley. Nick, welcome. Thank you. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, uh, the host and chief provocateur for the program today. Uh, so why don't we start? I thought this was a really interesting story because it suggests uh, either that the uh, JAGs that uh, have been advising the U.S. government on how to do uh, cyber attacks uh, have somehow uh, started providing their expertise to the Chinese or the Chinese have just gotten OPSEC religion. Uh, um, and Nick, what's going on here? We flagged last week the supply chain attacks targeting software supply, see, and there's a more detailed report from Wired Out suggesting that this group that's doing some really spooky good stuff like the Asus driver attack, attacking game companies, modifying the game company compilers to Trojan the games and other things is actually a Chinese, not the NSA, which is, to my mind, surprising because it's very aggressive techniques, but very restrained in execution. So they, 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 they basically infect the world and compromise the handful. Yes. And this is a piece of tradecraft that was very common for the NSA. The NSA, I like to call the NSA's technology abusive, but not abused because they've the Snowden documentation revealed they are so restrained in actually using what they do. And this is incredibly restrained as well. And compared co restrained it, compared to the, um, the Russians who have been abusive and abusing things yes. like uh, uh, not pet yet. Yes. Or the Chinese otherwise. The, the Chinese have a reputation of basically stealing everything that isn't nailed down. And if it's nailed down, you steal the nails first. 
Yeah, and and not caring whether they got caught. I I once compared them to uh, uh, the Russians and the and the Americans to cat burglars, astonished at the success of the Chinese who just drive fifty six Chevys through the window of jewelry stores and take the stuff that way. Yeah, and so this is apparently a Chinese group that is very U.S. in its tradecraft. Well, but um, you know that was really at the end of the day. The goal of indicting all those PLA guys, uh, the idea that we would get the Russian, the Chinese to stop doing cyber espionage was always um, a pretty questionable. But making them spend the time and effort to uh, reduce the noise with which they carried out cyber espionage was probably our most realistic hope. And it looks like that might actually be happening. And it's not just noise, but aggressiveness in terms of actually exploiting information because they're getting into a lot of places with this where they're not actually exploiting anything when three or four years ago we would have expected them to basically go go all out so well so maybe the, those indictments work yeah maybe so and well there but there's another price to be paid and ironically uh, um, we're seeing that in a case where it's probably the case that the Chinese didn't engage in the supply chain upstream attack. Uh, but Supermicro, uh, which to my surprise is right behind Dell and HP in supplying uh, PC blades to people, is saying that it's moving out of China, moving its uh, supply chain out of China. Uh, they, of course, were famously attacked for having some little grain of rice chip that was thought to be uh, reporting to uh, to China that was never proved, was it? And Joel, uh, you, you were also uh, uh, head of counterintelligence for a while for the DNI, uh, so yeah. you must have followed this. I, of course, although I was out of office when it happened, the, um, this now we're moving to a, a hardware attack rather than a software attack, but the same principle, which is to allegedly infect a lot of different things in order to facilitate access. Uh, I was warned off this story by friends at Langley really early on, and it just doesn't seem to have panned out. Nobody's been able to come up with a single example of this chip, which according to Bloomberg had been distributed into everything Supermicro did. At the same time, I'm not prepared to think that Supermicro didn't have some kind of problem. My guess is, and it's only a guess, that there was some smoke there, but that presenting it as a wholesale corruption of the supply chain was a lot of malarkey. Yeah, um, Bloomberg has stuck by its story, but in a more muted way recently. And, and the one suspects that that's exactly the case, that there was, there was smoke, there was a, uh, a, a flap about it inside the government and maybe inside some of the buyers. Uh, and then Supermicro resolved it to their satisfaction, at which point it was, it was leaked to, uh, to Bloomberg. Yeah, and Dell and everybody else who uses this stuff in NSA know a lot more about this than we do um, and that know more than they're telling. My guess is that the fact that there was something involved here, that it wasn't simply entirely a lot of malarkey, uh, is why uh, they've decided to move their chip fab out of China. Now, that's an enormous move, an enormously expensive move. But I think they were probably confronted with a an issue of goodwill that they felt might destroy the company. Uh, it'd be really interesting to be on, interesting to be a fly on the wall 
in the meeting between Sun Micro and and uh, and Michael Dell's people as to uh, what Dell was demanding. Well, there was a they, they they took a pretty substantial hit in their volume of sales, uh, and all of this at the end of the day comes back to fear about Chinese commercial cyber espionage, which which tells you that China is starting to pay an economic price for its insouciance in the last 20 years about uh, getting caught um, and probably will continue to pay that price for a while. Yeah, it'd be real interesting to see whether anybody else follows with moving this kind of fabrication out of China. My guess is probably not without some real spur. It's awfully expensive. Well, China is getting more expensive. So uh, looking, I, I think this is actually overdetermined. It's expensive to source in China unless it's a pretty sophisticated uh, workforce that you're looking for. Uh, this is not uh, this is not low paid labor anymore. Uh, and so there were re- other reasons to look around for uh, a supply chain. But moving the fab, of course, uh, you don't move the fab. You move your fab contracts. And my guess is they'll go to somebody like TSMC or somebody like that. Well, this case isn't the chip fab, but the assembly. So the systems responsible for building oh, boards, you can do that in Vietnam putting everything or, together. Or Thailand. Yeah. And or, not only yeah. that, that is a, a supply chain that initially required a lot of labor, but is now very, very automated. So you can actually get really good U.S. domestic manufacturing for that stuff these days. I know, I've used it. The other thing is, I think the rumors from Apple a few years back was that it was a supply chain attack on the BIOS on an update and caught early rather than this hardware attack. And truth be told, I think Bloomberg committed journalistic malpractice with their photo illustration that people even these days still think is the real thing when, no, that was just a photo of a random little little chip that looked cool. Yeah, on somebody's and, fingertip, if I remember right. Yeah. Yeah. And worse is they did a follow-up article by the same authors where they claimed a supply chain attack that just does not make sense, period. And so as a consequence, those two authors, if I see anything from them, I do not trust anymore because they have basically proven themselves to be untrustworthy reporters. Well, when you rely on on anonymous sources from the intelligence community, uh, uh, we are all uh, relying on you to, to get it exactly right, uh, including the nuance. And so, yes, that it, it's fair to say these guys just are not cutting it uh, using that kind of source. Let's switch to uh, the People's Republic of California, where if this were a movie and GDPR were dumb and dumber, the California CCPA would be dumb and dumberer. It's a remarkably uh, sweeping law kind of drafted by amateurs, passed in a panic to head off an initiative, and uh, the original date of uh, effectiveness uh, was delayed until the end of this year so that California Assembly could take a look at uh, the ambiguities in the law and fix them. And now that process has started. It's not clear where that's going to end up, but Megan has been watching it. So, Megan, tell us what the state of play on the CCPA is. Sure. So we're definitely in a legislative tug of war here, per se. The law, as you mentioned, was passed in 
just a couple days, I think when it was passed, even privacy proponents recognized that it needed to be cleaned up some. I think the the week it came out said on their website, you know, there will need to be changes. But overall, they, of course, liked it because it's a broad privacy law. The governor issued the clarifying amendment in fall, basically pushing back the governor's ability to bring enforcement actions under the laws. The law was always set to take effect January 1st, 2020, but now the governor's it has to wait six months before bringing any enforcement actions. Okay. So ever since the law was passed, everyone from the industry, retail and tech industries have been looking how to clarify and restrict it. And everyone from privacy groups have been looking for a way to make it even more stringent. Attorney General Becerra proposed an amendment that would broadly expand the private right of action under the law, which really, when you talk about People's Republic of California, you think about statutes like Prop 65 that have statutory penalties and very easy for plaintiffs to, you know, bring very, very expensive lawsuits that, though in the name of consumers, really are more beneficial to the lawyers, I would say. So the private uh, right of action is the principal toughening uh, amendment that uh, is being pursued? Right now, there's a fairly limited private right of action that only applies to certain kinds of data breaches. Becerra's proposed amendment would broaden it to allow a private right of action for pretty much any violation under the law, regardless of whether there's actual damage. What about the uh, proposals to trim it or clarify it? What are the three or four that are uh, most likely to, uh, I I guess some of them have actually gotten out of committee, right? Uh, So those have at least some legislative support and some prospect of passing. Right. So right now we're, we're watching both the state assembly and the state senate. The first round of this fight was when Becerra proposed the amendment I was just talking about in the state Senate. Then last week, uh, on the 23rd, the Assembly's Privacy and Consumer Protection Committee let through six bills that would trim the law. The ones that retailers and other businesses care most about are, for example, the definition of consumers and the statute as written would include any California resident, including employees. So that one of the amendments would restrict the definition of consumers to exclude employees. Another one, right now, the definition of the protected personal information under the law would include the identified information, which is pretty much unheard of and worse than GDPR. One of the amendments would restrict that. And then another one. Right now, the law is written has what's called an anti-discrimination provision, which basically says that businesses can charge more for customers who refuse to share. If you've ever signed up for you know, a retailer's mailing list, you know that retailers really like sending coupons to people who are on their mailing list and who are in their loyalty programs. And the law was pretty unclear as to whether or not that would be allowed. So one of the proposed amendments basically creates a carve-out for loyalty programs saying that that would be okay. So let me ask, uh, what's the process from here? When will we know what this law, which is taking effect in roughly six months, actually is going to say? You know, who knows how long it'll take. First, the Assembly will have to vote on these laws that just made it out of committee, and then they would head to the Senate. The Senate is where that monster bill about uh, the private right of action is pending. So they've still got a long way to go. I think 
although privacy groups oppose all of these kind of more restricting amendments, I think, frankly, they all seem kind of small beans compared to the private right of action issue. Okay, so maybe there's a deal, uh, because I'm sure that's what people are angling for, a deal in which uh, um, the uh, private right of action gets expanded as, uh, as the price of getting some clarity on some of these other topics. Or if if, if I'm playing the politics from the other side, I say, hey, look, the calendar's on my side. You have to get this bill passed. And if I say no strongly enough and delay things enough, uh, you're going to give me a deal I want. So it uh, sounds as though the people who want more of this of CCPA and less uh, amendments probably have the whip hand in this discussion. You know, I, I, I don't hope so. But I, I also think, you know, working with so many retailers in this space, so much of the problem right now is lack of clarity in terms of what is actually needed to comply with the law. And I think, in theory at least, it's in everyone's interest for businesses to understand what the law requires of them. I'm hopeful that at a minimum, some of this stuff will get clarified. We will see. What's kind of remarkable is that at the same time, we'll be waiting to see whether this uh, the amendments to CCPA make it through. We'll also be trying to figure out whether there's going to be an NSA 215 program uh, uh, because um, Congress, in its wisdom, has... Uh, called for that to expire every five years or so. And uh, now it's not even clear that NSA is going to ask that its most uh, famous 215 program continue. Joel, uh, you were part of this at, in one way or another for probably 10 or 15 years, weren't you? Yeah, very nearly from the beginning under stellar wind before the stuff got statutorily put in statutory on a statutory foundation. I'll pause for a minute because 215 is not a metadata statute. It's a production of tangible things statute. And it has been amend, first interpreted, now amended explicitly to allow bulk metadata to be collected. But what NSA is uninterested in is the bulk metadata aspect of this. It would be strange to get rid of the FISA court's ability to require the production of tangible goods and things, even if they were highly um, uh, targeted and highly uh, specified. So what so you're it, suggesting, if, if, if the 215 began as a sort of obvious thing, that if there's something is relevant to an investigation and it's a national security investigation, the FISA court ought to have the same ability to issue a subpoena that a criminal, uh, the court, federal court could issue in a criminal case. And it was changed actually after 2001, after 9-11 uh, uh, to say that. Uh, and then um, creative lawyering said, well, gee, maybe we could build this entire metadata program uh, where we collect everybody's metadata, but only look at it when we decide that it's relevant. Uh, and the collection is not the problem. The actually looking at it is. And that produced Snowden leaks and um, uh, a crisis and amendments that said, no, you can't do it that way. You have to leave it with the uh, phone company, leave the data with the phone companies, and they'll do the search for the particular people you're interested in. And that's where it stands. And that program has had nothing but trouble, both before and after the amendment. Uh, uh, the latest, um, you know, NSA has basically said, we had to destroy all the data because Due to a technical glitch, we collected too much. They haven't really restarted it, as far as I can tell. There, there's so, there are so many 
difficulties with complying with the statute. You, you take the original act and then you put on top of it the FISA Amendments Act. And so you have to run through a steeplechase of obstacles to make sure you're not making a mistake. And the lawyers and oper- operators who operate under this statute have felt like this is designed to create a compliance problem. We're, we're doing our best and we're making mistakes because we can't help it. It is worth Stuart pausing for a minute to explain why the bulk metadata was wanted to begin with. We rolled up terrorist networks in Iraq with extraordinary skill and speed because we owned all the switches in Iraq. And we had all of the data and could see who was talking to whom. And, and you know, if you saw a phone call go from Mr. A to Mr. B, it, it only lasts four seconds. And then you see a phone call from Mr. B to Mr. C, D, and E, that only lasts four seconds. And then bombs go off where C, D, and E are. You don't need to know what the content of that conversation was. And so that's what we were, we were doing. And General Alexander felt that we ought to try to do the same thing in the United States. And the theory was that you need the universe of data because you can't do link analysis unless you really have all the data of all the communications. Well, fair fair enough. I mean, and, and look, it, 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 but in fact, we never had that kind of terrorist ring to roll up in, inside the United States. The last one we had carried out 9-11, and uh, nobody has been well enough organized or crazy enough to try it again that way. Um, That's right. And so right. At, at some point, you, uh, given the amount of disfavor the program attracted from the idea that you know the government was looking at everybody's phone calls, it's not surprising it got cut back, and it's not surprising it got cut back in ways that are hard to administer uh, as a practical matter, and that it's become a kind of honey trap for compliance violations, and not surprising that NSA, which takes this compliance stuff very seriously, is saying, why should we start down this road? We'll just end up with egg on our face. The question I guess I have is, is there a reason to keep the language that authorized that program in place, or should the administration be focusing on keeping the rest of 215, which authorizes the same things that you can do in a criminal case? In my view, the big problem that we had with this statute was that we did it in the dark. And we did it so that the public did not know the rules under which NSA was operating. That is always a strategic mistake. And it costs strategic public support for the agency. So I think the idea of leaving saying it's no good, it's been useless to us, we don't want it, but we want the ability to collect anybody and everybody's metadata anytime we want it anyway, really smells bad. I mean, well, I, I'm not for that. I think that this statute could be easily amended by um, saying, you know, it's not going to be interpreted anymore to allow bulk collection of metadata and otherwise leave it in place. Okay. That is a plausible psychoanalysis of NSA's position on this uh, and probably where the the administration may may say we want everything the way it is in case we need it. Uh, uh, but my guess is that uh, it's going to be hard to find the votes for that. And at the end of the day, we may see the whole metadata structure uh, decline uh, or fall as part of the uh, renewal. Yeah, I think that's likely. Um 
And remember, last year, I mean, how, how many million records did they collect last year? Tens or hundreds of millions? Of they, and they went into this database 40 times, NSA reports. Right. And I'm sure that if they had, if one of those 40 dips into the data had produced something startling, we'd have been told. Okay. Um, we're going to uh, uh, try to finish up reasonably quickly. Uh, uh, Facebook has um, extended its uh, censorship program, uh, banning several right-wing commentators, most notably Alex Jones from InfoWars, uh, and uh, throwing in Louis Farrakhan, who uh, was always the go-to uh, uh, hate speech uh, advocate on the left that uh, people pointed out was still getting uh, kid glove treatment from Silicon Valley. Facebook said, no, he's going down too. Remarkably, they have said that they're going to ban links to InfoWars, which does strike me as a little uh, over the top, even for Silicon Valley. Uh, so, uh, Nick, uh, uh, you followed this. Uh, I should tell you that I am running a beta test of the uh, uh, Facebook censorship uh, engine. Every day on Facebook, I'm going to post another InfoWars link to see whether, in fact, uh, Facebook is banning links or is going to ban me putting my Facebook uh, uh, subscription at risk to ad advise our uh, uh, listeners on what's actually happening. So far, we're at day four. Uh, every link is up. Um, the, the account is up. Uh, so I'm not sure they're applying this quite as aggressively as they have implied. Yeah. And really what it comes down to is they no longer want to treat InfoWars like NBC News. And that's reasonable. Truth be told, the Silicon Valley companies have been very slow to react on both the right and the left because of the backlash they get. Because, among other things, it's hard to tell whether where Trumpism merges into QAnon and then out into 8chan. And we can see this actually with 8chan. So 8chan is now responsible for breeding two terrorist attacks. One in the U.S., one in New Zealand. At this point, you can call that site a terrorist-supporting, terrorist-creating organization. Would you say the but same thing about the Southern Poverty Law Center, which uh, went after a family research council and a guy with a gun looking to kill people showed up there saying, yeah, well, I saw it on the SPLC's hate list and I thought I'd kill me some. There's a difference that 8chan is specifically a community, and so it's a community that is actively self-radicalizing people. Zenyep Tufeki has a really good analysis of how these communities work, uh, looking at a previous one, the Reddit creep shots and jailbait forums. So 8chan is truly reprehensible, but it still gets supported by Cloudflare. So Silicon Valley effectively is continuing to support this so i'm not i'm not i'm not buying you know Cl cloudflare provides basic services so that you can't be ddosed out of business if i remember right uh, they don't just ddos they are content delivery so basically everything you fetch from um stormfront or 8chan yeah but it's it, um, it, but that's done by popularity uh they, they 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 basically move the most popular content closer to the user right 
they cash it. Yes. They distribute it. And, and, they and so they're, the they're not, they are so much farther from being a publisher or, or taking responsibility for the content uh, than uh, Facebook is. Uh, it's, except that you're, um, you're basically saying uh, these, are, these people are bad people and no one in, the, in, the, in Silicon Valley should do business with them. And they are bad people. But I think the idea of saying everybody in Silicon Valley with their uh, sort of epistemic closure on uh, a whole host of topics should decide what the rest of us are allowed to have uh, access to. I think that's just weird. I, uh, those those people are, you know, you live there. Uh, I used to visit a lot. They're a little crazy. Yeah, and it tends to actually be this weird meritocracy idea that where merit is uh, 50% luck and 50% sociopathy. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I used to, I used to, I, when I was working for NSA, uh, fighting with uh, uh, Microsoft and the rest of Silicon Valley over uh, encryption policy, I used to say that uh, their uh, government affairs shop had a, a four sentence mantra for dealing with government We're smart, we're rich, you're not, we win. <laughs> it works for quite a while. It did. It did. Okay, so we will we will continue to follow this. Uh, but I, I I think there's a sort of sick codependency here. Uh, Facebook wants to be treated as uh, having banned Alex Jones because it gets credit for that among you know the people it goes to uh, cocktail parties with, and Alex Jones wants to be the victim of uh, Facebook censorship. But I, it is a more subtle story as, as my uh, efforts to, uh, to get kicked off of uh, Facebook show. Uh, speaking of more subtle stories, uh, this one seems to uh, be a story that depends on where you start, how you end up. Uh, uh, the FBI has said that a bunch of uh, medical researchers uh, were sending a, a lot of their IP to China, setting up shadow labs. Uh, the researchers, uh, all of whom were described as Asian, uh, have now been canned or have quit. And some people are saying, well, this is an example of just how bad Chinese espionage is. And at least Science Magazine is saying, well, could be, uh, you know, racial discrimination. Uh, Joel, what do you think? Well, I think the, the bottom line here is nothing new. The Chinese have been doing this and continue to do it in laboratories across the country and in Europe. They will continue to do it unless they have some serious price to pay that's not being imposed on them. By the way, this was not just the FBI, it was NIH. And, you know, I, I'm really skeptical of this, this racial business. I mean, you know, you go into any high-tech research environment right now, whether it's in Texas or Massachusetts or California, and there are all kind, there are lots of Asians around. And I just don't, I don't believe it. You had MD Anderson, uh, which was the victim down in Houston, uh, investigate this. There were five people. They were told that they were bad actors. They exonerated one. They fired three. And the other one's still under investigation. It sounds to me like a very measured response. I'm not privy to the proof, but I've seen this over and over and over again. Chinese researchers in laboratories, the Iranian ones too to some degree, decamping with the, um, with, with the crown jewels and setting up competitive organizations in China. 
Nick, last word on this one? Uh, yes. This is the sort of thing that there should be statutes that throw you in jail on because one of the accusations was misusing peer review. When Which is at the heart a, of NIH's – all of NIH's billions of dollars are handed out in peer review. So if you if you screw with peer review, you are basically misallocating all those billions. It's not even that. It's that – as a panelist for NIH or NSF, I have a duty of care for confidentiality that the submissions that I'm reviewing, I have clear conflict of interest requirements. I have a clear duty of care not to go mailing copies of them in email to my Chinese shadow lab. Yep, sounds right. This would this would subvert the entire uh, uh, peer review process, and without that, NIH would have no idea which ideas were promising and which weren't. Well, we're going to close with another facial recognition scandal. This is this is the most shocking uh, yet. Uh, it turns out that in the pursuit of building a uh, uh, library of face recognition, uh, researchers are chasing subjects around, holding them down, taking their pictures against their will. The subjects are forced to use their tongues to try to block the, uh, the, the cameras. Uh, and then the facial recognition software doesn't even work. Uh, the only uh, good news about this uh, for everybody but PETA is that this is an effort to do facial recognition on pigs and cows. Uh, it was a great story in the Wall Street Journal. I, I'm guessing we will not see that as the latest facial recognition scandal, but it was fun to think about it uh, as such. Uh, Finishing up, thanks to uh, Megan Brooks, to Joel Brenner, to Nick Weaver for joining us today. Uh, this has been episode 262 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, please do suggest an interview guest, and we'll send you a coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Send those to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, I promise to read the um, reviews that we get, especially the, uh, the, the entertainingly abusive ones. This is not entertainingly abusive, but it is an interesting take uh, from Toquam. If you think Stuart Baker is too right-wing and who doesn't, uh, why not name a comparably informed, experienced, and funny lefty? You might get a coveted coffee mug. And yes, you will, because we'll put them on the show, uh, as long as they're not too funny. And, and then he goes on to say, the latest blockchain takes over the podcast item without Stuart would count as a brilliant law school, continuing legal education, and startup VC course. And he talks about taking notes on all of the things uh, uh, said, um, uh, saying that uh, cyber law makes these uh, obvious in context and after a few casts you will likely follow it even if you didn't take notes and google everything that you heard so i we do have a fair number of students who listen to this just to get acclimated to the uh, the field uh, and i think he's right that uh, the blockchain stuff in particular while it's uh, deep uh, and complex uh, really rewards you if you're thinking about getting into the field uh, so show credits uh Christy Jorge is our producer. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Michael Beaver is our assistant and editor. I am Stuart Baker, your host and provocateur. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and